Hello, listeners. Welcome back to the Modern History HSC podcast. My name is Blake Hamilton, and today we're going to be talking about our second focus topic for the Chinese Cultural Revolution, where we are admittedly going to be skipping over some of the content to get to the end part of the Cultural Revolution, and we will come back to these topics. Um, but we're going to be looking at the rise of Deng Xiaoping. Uh, China trying to modernize, and of course, Tiananmen Square. Tiananmen Square stands out as one of these bits of content that I think really draws people into the topic because it is so much in recent memory. The parallels of Tiananmen Square from the Hong Kong protests that took place um, about over a year ago, just before COVID. were so poignant and just like on the public consciousness. Um, So we really want to dive into these two topics and save some things to come back to. But again, if you want to know what has happened after the Cultural Revolution, I'm going to start you off with this. So after the Cultural Revolution, Mao deemed his successor because this guy's getting pretty old. Yes, he's swum the Yangtze River, uh, uh, the Yangtze River faster than an Olympic swimmer, uh, even though that probably wasn't fact-checked. Um, he's getting pretty old, and he's looking to pass his authority onto Lin Biao, who is the creator of the Little Red Book. Um, Lin Biao perhaps gets a little bit too big for his boots. He's the leader of the People's Liberation Army, and... He dies in quite uh, suspicious circumstances. He's flying to the Soviet Union for refuge and his plane crashes and it kills everybody on board. Um, This leaves, again, a little bit of a power vacuum that with Lin Biao gone, Mao is certainly coming back to becoming the leader of the party. He's looking to make sure that his legacy is in place. And he decides he's going to rehabilitate Deng Xiaoping. Now, Deng Xiaoping um, was exiled during the Cultural Revolution for siding with Liu. Uh, Liu died in prison uh, during the events of the Cultural Revolution. And Deng, who is one of Mao's longtime friends, long-term compatriots, from the Long March and everything, is being brought back into the fold um, and taken under Mao's wing um, after Deng comes back and pleads, like, his case and pleads that he was wrong about everything. Life in China is can, is incredibly disruptive um, from politics to culture to education. Uh, the Red Guard are not running amok anymore. The... Uh, The PLA, the army, was brought in to quell and take control away from the Red Guard uh, to add some stability back into the situation. But by 1976, we see an error end. We have Premier Zhao Enlai pass away. Um, There is a great public outcry of um, mourning for Zhao Enlai. And this exposes Mao's insecurity that it is not going to be all about him. 
Mao's last act before he too passes away is to gift power not to Deng Xiaoping, um, not to the Gang of Four, who is still active at this point in time, but he gives it to almost an unknown offsider um, who is Huagu Fang, who is going to have to team up with Deng um, out of necessity to defeat the Gang of Four. That is the brief overview of all the stuff that we're not going to go into uh, specific detail about, but I do want to introduce our guests. So we're going to start off with Jackson Worley. Jackson, can you give us a, be a brief introduction? Uh, hello, my name's Jackson Worley and I will be part of this uh, podcast looking into China and its uh, politics for today. Excellent. And Jackson, I'll ask the same sort of question I asked Tom. Do you like this topic? Do you think it's easy? Do you think that this is one of the harder ones that we tackle? Um, I like this topic just because it's, it is pretty uh, intricate in the way of um, Mao's decisions to employ and unemploy um, politicians and to also like every individual aspect from all the politicians because so many people in the, let's say, the Parliament of China had so many different ideas of how China should be run. Um, and it was really just, it's interesting looking at how the public eventually forms uh, one final um, and total like decision altogether as to who should be the actual, let's say, uh, president of China and, and their ideas on what um, is correct and what is incorrect. So evidently, it's pretty interesting seeing that eventually it's kind of the public who takes power of the parliament and um, brings decisions. So I think it's kind of hard, but also um, with that hard insight, it's really interesting to look at. Yeah, thank you. Um, I agree with you in the way that it's not like we're studying World War II and we're following these battles. It is a political and cultural drama but it's also a little bit more relatable because once you do these sorts of topics, you're always seated in your mind a little bit like, well, where else is this happening in the globe? I've seen it happen now several times in the last 70 years, all these prominent cases. Is it happening somewhere else in the globe? Is it happening to a lesser extent in my own country that it really opens up this idea that you might not have ever considered before? Um, I'm going to pass over to Mark Matheson. Uh, yeah, so I'm Mark. I'm going to be one of the participants in the um, podcast this episode. Um, yeah, I don't mind this subject, this um, topic, because as you said, the Hong Kong riots like a year year or two ago, um, yeah, it has strong links to this sort of topic, and it's a bit more recent too and close to home rather than like World War II and stuff. So, yeah, it's not too bad. Excellent. Thank you, Mark. Um, Sam, a little bit of an intro from you, mate. Hey, everybody. It's Sam here. Um, uh, I just want to start by saying uh, how I really enjoy modern history. And I think this subject in particular, it takes a lot of time and energy to go in depth to, to get a good understanding of it. So, um I find this one one of the more interesting and, and harder ones to, to wrap your head around. Excellent. Thank you, Sam. And our last guest, we're going for four this time. We have Scott 
Better hand. Yeah, g'day. I'm Scott. Uh, we'll be discussing about Deng Xiaoping's modernizations and the events that unfolded at Tiananmen Square. I um I enjoy modern history as you can find patterns that are that can reoccur and you can compare them to what's happening in our current era, like um, certain patterns that will say when a disaster will unfold. And I find it quite, quite cool to see those come right, like before COVID hit, um, there was patterns of certain crises like World War One and Two, there was periods of time where you could kind of predict that it was going to happen, and that's exactly what happened with our current <laughs> crisis, which is COVID. And I find those patterns pretty cool to observe. Excellent. Thanks, Scott. That's an excellent point. Um, I'm going to keep it with you, Scott, so don't go too far away. We're going to go with our first t- talking point, which we are now in 1977 to 1978. We have Deng and Hua Fang. Just to skip over that, we know that the da- uh, that the Gang of Four were important for trying to take power for Mao, and they're thinking that um, now that Mao's gone, Now's our chance. So we have Madame Mao and her compatriots thinking, we're going to take power, we're going to run the show. Um, however, their authority came from Mao and Huagu Fang is able to undermine them as well uh, with getting some support from Deng Xiaoping. So the people that we have left are just Huagu Fang and Deng. What makes these two gentlemen different? because only one is going to come out on top. Um, I have to palm this one off to someone. Jackson, would you mind? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, with Huagu Feng, he doesn't have the um, political backup from the public like Deng, Deng does. I mean... Deng Xiaoping has always been loved by the um, people of China. And I would say that the people following um, who are probably a more of a minority in the public and the majority of people supporting uh, the individual politician would be Deng. So he definitely has more of a backup and more probably of a power gain um, than who are on with that aspect. Absolutely. So he's got more of a history. He's more of a known person. And it's really not even about him being popular. It's just like about him being known. Um, and he's come back in. He's got these links to Mao. He was on the he was on the long march. Um, what about their particular ideas? So we know that Dang is about modernizing the country. Is Huagu Fang all on board for modernising the country too? I might keep this one with you, Jackson. And if you're not sure, you can pass it off. Um, no, I don't think he is. I think he wanted to keep that, um, I don't know, like nationalistic sense, but wanted to kind of have the 
um, communist take on it still and not to try and completely modernise China to the way it should have been, whereas Deng had, um, you know, more outlook on wanting to make China um, way more modern and definitely have more connections, um, stable connections between countries such as Japan and the US um, after the Second World War. I think Huar kind of wanted to keep that cultural um, identity and significance without kind of linking to um, other countries and modernising as much. So, and I think the public of China also wanted to be modernised um, with the support of Deng and what his ideas were. So, yeah, I think who I was still a little backwards, kind of like Mao in that in that sense. Excellent. Um, Sam or Mark, do you want to jump in and keep this ball up in the air? Probably should have been specific. Sam, I'm going to go to you, mate. So the ball's to you. So Huagu Fang's about the communes. He's been gifted this authority from Mao. So, of course, he wants to keep the Mao legacy going. But what else is it about Dang? Um, maybe you could talk about his four modernizations. What are they? Uh, four, Dang's four modernizations included agri increasing agriculture, industry, science, and technology within China. And... This was focused on just completely modernising China and just to become a, the powerhouse country that we we know them to be today. And I think just focus on the output of the agriculture where, where they put peasants into the farms and allowed um, private profit and production. Just overall, just increase the his popularity, Deng's popularity within the communist China. Cool, thank you. Um, Mark, do you have anything else to add? Um, I will say that Sam pointed out three of the four modernizations. So we got agriculture, industry, science and tech are together. And there's one more. Starts with the D. Yeah, and the other one I think was defense, was it? I think Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, what would Deng seek to gain with increasing investment into defense? in China, so defence spending. Yeah, is that one for me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is just like off the cuff. So that we know that Deng gets a lot of his support from the army. So if he is going to be increasing funding into the army, what's the logical link that we have here? Yeah, well, that's a lot of his support, obviously. So they're going to support his um, ideas and opinions and that. And he's going to have a lot of power too, because obviously the military brings and defence and that brings a lot of power behind you. So yeah, yeah, he's. This is a, another example of Deng through the modernisations. He is consolidating his power. The army is on his side. That's his strong connection. That's his historical link. So if like he's throwing them a bone, essentially, it's like I'm going to make it our policy to increase your your spending and your importance. It's not going to be about the Red Guard or, you know, these student radicals. It's you guys are going to be centre stage. You're going to be the authority and I'm going to be in charge. Um, can anybody think of some historical parallels where this has also happened before, either with 
our Nazi topic or our Soviet topic. And I might throw this to Scott if, because he's been a little bit quiet since the beginning. So, Scott, can you think of an example? Yeah, the Nazis also had a focus on youth because um, their ultimate goal was to continue the Nazi regime. Um, so they targeted the youth by giving them more, I guess, political significance and obviously having a wider focus on them because their minds were easier to sway um to their side um so china obviously has gone for the same same direction and they've targeted the youth of china and um, this involves like students and uni students um so as we heard before when mao had Talk like he gave the students a lot more power and obviously got away with a lot more things. They, um, Deng Xiaoping focused on not what Mao did, instead, he gave them better opportunities for education because that could further continue on into the future where they'd, I guess, evolve as a more modern society because uh, in focusing on science and technology they were obviously able to advance and become more relevant to other countries such as the US and um, Deng Xiaoping was actually the first leader to in modern China to visit the state of US and this was to improve the relations and obviously improve the economy, which he did because the GDP or gross domestic product from 1960 to 2012 exponentially grew from zero trillion to 12 trillion dollars, which was a massive growth in China. And obviously that's how modern China has been able to stay relevant in the superpowers of the world today. Excellent. Thanks, Scott. Um, I'm going to um, maybe rephrase the original question again. I think Scott went down a good path of making a connection for focusing on the youth. Dang is focusing on the youth. Um, not by radicalizing them, but again, making them a new promise, a promise that you are going to um, that you're going to have a new form of education, you're going to be modern citizens. Um, but I do want to see if we can make that connection to the army. So Deng's getting his power from the army. What is another historical figure? And perhaps what is the important event where the the radical group is removed and the army is given uh, more prominence? Um, 
I don't know this one, sorry. But I think an event. I think an event. I can help you out if you want, Scott. Cheers. Cheers. Um, so, uh, figure in Hitler, he he specifically um, increased his military power by with the with his armies, the SA, and then the formation of the SS, and by controlling um, the military leader in Ernst Rome, he had power and he had the say in what happened, and and ultimately led to like. A lot of corruption within Germany, so they could be as violent and as cruel as they want to people who were opposing the um, the Nazi the regime. And when they, when he's seen as the army to to be getting too dangerous, he again just forced the SA to just uh, get rid of them. Um, and which was the night of the long knives, where they ultimately executed a lot of the army leaders and the most of the opposing SS because obviously they were in opposition and they were becoming too powerful and um, Hitler didn't want them to overthrow the Nazi party and the Nazi regime. Sam, I will just jump in that you got it. You're on the right track, but you got the groups um, twisted. So... The, if you think about it, you've said that the SA are coming in, they, they've got the power from, from Hitler, they're, they're a little bit corrupt, they're thugs, they're going around beating up people who aren't following the, the new and upcoming Nazi party. And Hitler's trying to be a professional this time around. He's had his failed beer hall putsch, and he's trying to be a professional politician. And he finds out that the SA has this underlying sort of hint of homosexuality that is going on um he didn't really care about it at the beginning but then the image was thinking oh that's going to breed into perhaps maybe his new nazi youth leagues that are going on so the night of the long knives is about changing alliances to the german army and removing the sa so the story you said was correct we just got the characters mixed up yeah, too easy. Yeah, and if we're bringing that back to China, that's kind of another parallel to what's happening here with uh, Dang. That Dang is looking to consolidate his power, give authority to the army, take it away from the Red Guard, because the Red Guard, they aren't loyal to Dang. They're loyal to, to Mao, Mao's ideas, his legacy, uh, and Huagu Fang. Um. We're going to move on to Tiananmen Square. Um, I'm going to start off with asking Jackson to give us a bit of an introduction to Tiananmen Square, which is going to take place in 1989. What happens here? Just as a high level, you don't have to get into any specifics. What is Tiananmen Square? Uh, Tiananmen Square is a, a movement for... Um, uh, like not like a reform, I guess, but there's such a um angst between the people of China of what's going to happen to China, you know, post Mao, um, and politically they're worried about what's going to happen for the future of the country, um, and so I think the the there was like a ton of corruption at the time, 
um, the economy was, you know, everything was not looking good. So the public wanted to um, have like a like a protest in Tiananmen Square to try and, um, you know, show the government that things were not going as they should be. And um, they were definitely worried about the future of China. Um, yeah, from the public aspect. Cool. Absolutely spot on that. Again, Dang's make these promises. The promises aren't coming to fruition. This is also coming in line with kind of like the end of the Cold War. The Soviet Union is also on the decline. So perhaps maybe the funds coming out of the Soviet Union to support China is 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 not helping as well. So the people are a little bit lost and they're gathering in Tiananmen Square to protest against the government. And it's not so much violent that like they're not asking for Deng Xiaoping's like head on a spit or anything like that. They're they're looking for a chance to be heard. Um, it is like what we've brought up so far. It's like the Hong Kong protests that it is mostly non-violent. I'm pretty sure from having a look at some documentaries that you could say that it was completely non-violent from the point of the students. Um, the worst thing that they were doing was going on hunger strikes, um, and this was just causing a a political headache for for Deng and people who were part of his party at the time. Um, Mark, do you want to add some information into how did Deng and the party respond to the hunger strikes and the protests that were going on in Tiananmen Square? Did they go down and have a tea party with them? Um, so they didn't. <laughs> yeah, um, spoiler. So he he sent down um troops with armed with assault rifles and accompanied by tanks, and they fired at demonstrators and those trying to block military advance into Tiananmen Square. Um, as we know, the protests um it spanned for a long time from April fifteenth to June fourth. And the government declared martial law and sent People's Liberation Army to occupy parts of central Beijing. Um, yeah, and yep. there was, I can cut in here if you want, Mark. Yep. Yeah, that's fine, Scott. Um, so the incident at Tiananmen Square was all started by Hu Yang Biaobang, who was seen as a um, non-corrupt official and when he died um, the students were worried that they were obviously going to get a corrupt leader and um, things weren't going to be the same so they peacefully came out to mourn um, Hugh's death but um, those numbers grew so much that was actually becoming a threat to the Chinese government, but they were only had peaceful intentions. Um, they had about 50,000 people come to mourn um, his death when they were greeted with police, and police um, obviously thought it was a threatening movement and tried to disperse the crowds with uh, force. 
originally it was um, shoving them away, pushing them away, but the students responded in doubling their numbers, and there was about 100,000. And obviously the threat grew, so they had riot shields and batons, and they were beating the crowds to disperse them. And it just further angered the students into a protest. So um, even workers took the opportunity to join the protest and movement. And that's when um, more extreme um, politicians won over Deng Xiaoping's opinion to move the military into the cities to um, stop the protests from continuing on. Uh, their first attempt was met with a blockade of people. Uh, the military tried to push past, but they couldn't, so they had to retreat. But the second time they come around, they fired live ammunition into the crowds and obviously resulted in lots of Chinese deaths. Um, there was obviously anger against the government from the students, and there was a, basically a, a really big riot between the military and the students, resulting in about 800 to 10,000 deaths. Um, so they, it was a quite a big incident, and obviously, with the arrival of the Russian leader, there was a lot of coverage from foreign countries, and the students used this opportunity to get their word out there. But um, the the Chinese government told all foreign uh, coverage to obviously get out of the country um, or risk being prosecuted. So we're, when we see infamous images like Tank Man, um, who stood up against a column of tanks by himself, um, there were people risking their lives to get the coverage out to places like America, who obviously had a big support for the students in this position. Thank you, Scott. That was really good. Well prepared. Um, Sam, I'm going to throw a question to you, and I know we're going a little bit over time, so it's not going to be it's not going to be too long. Um, what do you think the international response to Tiananmen Square has been and like what do you feel the international response when you talk about Tiananmen Square is today I know people make like jokes about it that oh you know it never it's like what are you talking about that never happened what is that joke implying Yeah, well, that that's it. Just the the events that that occurred in Tiananmen Square just 
we just discussed and then so disrupted um many people especially now just they try to act like it was an event that didn't occur just because of the pure brutality that was put upon the, the students who were just almost just protesting to have a certain amount of freedom in the in the political and um within the press and um <clears throat> it remembering the the protests that occurred that just questions the legitimacy of the communist party and it's it's an extremely sensitive topic especially for those in china and it's a widely censored topic like across the world because obviously so many deaths and it was just it was something that um just not many people want to remember just because of how cruel and how bad it was yeah absolutely and if we do have any chinese listeners as well we do want to point out that you know we're not picking on china for this topic that we understand that looking at different periods of time there is not a single country that perhaps doesn't have a history of an event that they want to forget however the censorship like we had chinese students that came to our school in Corindai high school and these exchange students that we had we were talking about the topic and they honestly either i think at the very extreme had no idea what we were talking about to perhaps um the less extreme uh didn't understand it in any detail they know that there was um some sort of a gathering or um um an outcry that was going on but nothing to the extent of students being killed or their parents who were rushing to the protest looking for their um like looking for their loved ones after the event turned so sour also being caught in the crossfires as well um the lasting impact of this if i'm going to wrap it up for us is that even though this event like even in australia bob hawk um crying in parliament talking about this particular event offering chinese students four-year special assignment visas straight away to come and stay in australia um, the European Economic Community condemned the actions of China and suspended all loans immediately. Um, loans were also froze from the Japanese and the US were suspending their military sales and started putting warnings up on visitors to go to China. Um, it showed the world that even though that China was modernising its ways of dealing with internal struggles, um, hadn't evolved for the modern age. Um, they didn't use water cannons. They didn't use tear gas or riot police. They sent in the army, and that's what happens in banana republics. And if China was going to step up and become a modern country um, and a modern um, member of the newly globalising world, it would have to change these things. But... Um, as everything, the incentive of money is always the stronger factor, even over morals. And it was not very long until this period of time was forgotten again, not just for China's sake, but for the people who wanted to trade with China. Everything's made in China, um, where it's the economic powerhouse of the world. Um, if you were going to be 
like say an Australia or if you were going to be a Japan or like I don't know a Madagascar or a, or a Saudi Arabia or whatever you were going to take the moral high ground and say no we're not going to trade with China we're not going to be involved with this you would have missed out on your country would have missed out on perhaps one of the largest economic boosts and expansions of the last 20 years and this incentive for money got everybody in the end and I think it's clear that if we were doing a response about this, it is purely not for Chinese censorship. The world wanted to forget this because China was the poster child for the new economy and everybody wanted to just kind of sweep it under the rug. I think we'll leave it here and I'm going to let our speakers have a bit of a sign off and let them go off to their next class, which I'm probably holding them up for. So, Jackson, can we have a sign-off from you, mate? Yeah, uh, thanks, everybody, that would listen to this, that's going to listen to this podcast. Hope you got some uh, good information from it, and please use it for um, whatever, for preparing for anything that you got to prepare for. So, thanks. Thanks, Jackson. Uh, Scott? Uh, thank you for listening. Hope we see you guys next time. Uh, Mark, can you go next? Yeah, this is Mark Sonoff. Um, yeah, thanks, thanks for all the um, viewers and the other participants in that. It was fun. Cool. And last but not least, Sam. Yeah, thank you everybody for listening, and hopefully we we'll see you on the next episode. Cool. Thank you very much. We'll see you all next time.